Good morning, everyone. I don't know if you're like me and you look at the weather forecast for the week upcoming and it gives you a little extra bounce in your step because uh, I'm officially bidding winter adieu. <laughs> it's, I've declared it. I don't think that means anything, but uh, I hope anyway. Um, have, you ever, have you ever put someone through your own personal test to kind of see if they were up to snuff? according to your own standards, right? Maybe, maybe uh, parents, you can, can think about your son or daughter bringing home either a, a current or a prospective girlfriend or boyfriend, and you kind of feel the need to pepper them with questions to see if, uh, you just kind of size them up, right? See who they are. Um, <clears throat> maybe if you work in the medical field and, and, and your parent or your spouse or your child need some medical work done, and so you go with them to meet the new doctor and, and kind of make sure that that person knows what they're talking about and, you know, is the right kind of, of doctor for them. Or, 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 or maybe it's just someone who kind of has the potential to be, uh, be your, your friend, but before you go down that road, you want to touch on all the important topics like politics and sports and are you Android or Apple or which, you know, things that that uh, you got to know if you're compatible or not as friends. Um, and, and we could look at it the other way. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you knew someone was sizing you up, right? Um, maybe it's a job interview or you started a new school or, or you, you just reached out to someone for help with, with some kind of ongoing problem and you just kind of know, right? Like they're kind of sizing me up to, to see. Well, in our text today, we're, we're going to see Jesus being sized up by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. It's going to be the theme that, that uh, holds everything together this morning. And if you remember back to last week, uh, Jesus had, had finally come to the end of that journey that he'd been on since Luke chapter 9, where he was journeying toward Jerusalem. He set out for Jerusalem at the end of chapter 9, but it wasn't finally until the end of chapter 19 that he arrived at Jerusalem. And so that's what we talked about last week with the triumphal entry. Uh, we can't forget that as Jesus came into the city, what was often kept quiet regarding his identity as the Messiah was now being broadcast loud and clear. I mean, there were so many times previously where Jesus told individuals to keep his identity quiet um, because people just weren't quite ready for the kind of Messiah that he, that he had come to be. But, but now that he arrived at Jerusalem, what was kept quiet is, is proclaimed clearly for everyone to hear. So his identity was proclaimed as he rode into the city on a, a donkey that, that drew that clear connection back to Zechariah chapter 9 that messianic prophecy. Uh, Jesus then entered the temple and drove out the merchants from the outer courtyard, which would have drawn some significant attention to himself. If you're trying to, to keep quiet, you don't go into the temple on, a, on, on the week of Passover and start flipping over tables and driving people out. That, that's going to draw attention to yourself. Um, the fact that he then proceeded to teach in the temple and large crowds would come to him as he was teaching further drew attention to himself. So, so kind of because of that, Jesus now has, he's, he's got a target on his back as far as the religious leaders are concerned. They, they can't ignore Jesus any longer and just hope that he's going to go away. 
So they kind of zero in on him now, and, and we're going to see them this morning question Jesus in some different ways. Now, now when we question people, you know, back to what I was talking about as I started here about, you know, kind of asking questions to people to get to know them. When we do that, ideally we're doing that with an open mind about the matter, right? We're asking questions. We, we're, hopefully we're waiting to make a final decision about someone until after we've gathered the facts and, and heard their responses to our questions. That's not the case with the religious leaders today. Uh, they're not going about it with that kind of motive. Um, we left off chapter 19 Right at the end, you can see in verse 47, they're looking for a way to destroy Jesus. That's their goal. Not to get to know him or to come to accept him, but but to destroy him. So their mind is already made up. What they're doing is they're they're looking for a way to get rid of Jesus in, in a way that's quick, in a way that would provide the least amount of damage to their own image and their own power and their own influence. So that's their, that's their motive as they come into this this morning. So with all that being said, we'll, we'll pick it up at the beginning of chapter 20. And, and uh, Luke just says, he starts verse 1, one day. We know from the, from the other gospel writers that this is taking place on Tuesday. So on Tuesday of Holy Week, this is unfolding. So verse 1, it says, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple... In preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up. And I just want to stop there for a second because I, I, I want to clarify who it is exactly that, that's questioning Jesus in this passage. The, the verse says chief priests, scribes, elders. Um, if, if you're reading a different translation, instead of scribes, it might say teachers of the law. Um, if you go back to chapter 19, verse 47, we see um, principled men of the people are mentioned. Um, later on in chapter 20, we'll see the Sadducees specifically mentioned. Now, for the sake of simplicity, we can group all of those people together and, and, and call them the religious leaders. Uh, that's a fair way to, to kind of categorize the whole group together, the religious leaders. But in doing that, we have to make sure that, that, that we don't make the mistake of assuming that all of the subgroups within, within that group, that all of the subgroups have the same responsibilities or that they get along well together or that they agree on every point because that's just not the case. And, and as I was thinking of kind of an, uh, you know, an, an analogy f- from to our context today, you know, if I say the phrase United States Congress, that describes a group of people, but we know that they don't all have the same responsibilities, they don't get along well together, they don't all think the same on, right? I mean, that, that, that's not, we're not breaking new ground there. Like we recognize within the phrase United States Congress, there's subgroups in there. You could say there's the House of Representatives and then there's the Senate. And within those groups, you've got Republicans and you've got Democrats and, and you could keep subdividing people up farther and farther. We recognize that, that there's, there's, not, there's not uniformity within that phrase, uh, United States Congress. Well, well, in Jerusalem, the main religious ruling body was known as the Sanhedrin. And so 
within the Sanhedrin, we have these other subgroups. You have the chief priests. They're mentioned here. The chief priests were generally from a group known as the Sadducees. But not all Sadducees were chief priests. It's kind of the rectangle square kind of a thing. Sadduce uh, chief priests were typically Sadducees, but not all Sadducees were chief priests. And then you have the scribes, the teachers of the law. They were typically Pharisees, but not all Pharisees were scribes or teachers of the law. And, and, and then you've got, you've got lay people known as elders or principled men of the people, and, and it's just clear as mud, right? And, and, and we could spend a lot of time this morning examining each subgroup, but I, I, I think it's enough to recognize that within this group of religious leaders, there's quite a bit of diversity. They are all the religious leaders, but yet they're diverse. But still, the entire group is threatened by Jesus. So even for all the diversity there, they all feel threatened. And so together this morning, we're going to see them question Jesus in order to search for weaknesses, search for a way to get rid of him. So with that being said, let's, let's continue on. So we've got this group of religious leaders. And then verse two, said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So the question of authority in that context was important. This is a very, uh, very important topic. Our context today can definitely be different. Anyone with a Twitter account or a TikTok account can post something online and people might believe it. Uh, something doesn't have to be authoritative to go viral, right? But in that context, authority mattered greatly. And, and for the religious leaders, they, they had authority, they, they thought, in one way or the other. Some of the religious leaders would have considered their own authority to have been given to them by God. Other religious leaders would have seen their authority given to them by Rome, that they hold the position they had because Rome allowed them to. Some would have said it's both. It's God and Rome giving us this authority. But what they wanted to know is, Jesus, where does your authority come from? If you're flipping over tables in the temple, if you're standing in the temple teaching and crowds are gathering, what authority do you have to do that? Because if they can discredit the source of his authority, they can discredit him. And so they ask this question, and Jesus, knowing their, their motives, asked them a question in return. Well, he says, okay, if you will make a ruling on the authority of John the Baptist— then I'll tell you where my authority comes from. And, and we see right in the text that, that the religious leaders are in a pickle. And, and they explain it, right? If we say John's authority came from God, then we're condemning ourselves because we've rejected John and imprisoned him and, and he was killed. But if they say then that his authority came from Rome, then you've got pro-John crowds there for the Passover that are... That are likely to turn on the religious leaders and revolt against them. So 
they recognize their backs are against the wall. They're they're in a no-win situation, so they just... They just, you know, close their mouth and say, we don't know. Uh, we just can't tell you. And so then Jesus says, well, if, if you're not going to make a ruling on John's authority, then I'm not going to tell you where my authority came from either. So he didn't, at least not directly. He didn't directly tell them where his authority came from, but he went on to tell a parable that actually did make it, I think, quite clear where his authority came from. He didn't state it outright, but it's there in the parable. So let's look at what he went on to say in verse 9. It says, he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one, they also, this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So, multiple passages in the Old Testament describe God's people, Israel, like a vineyard. That was a very common picture used to describe Israel. The the beginning of Isaiah chapter 5 is maybe the most famous of those. And because that was a common picture in the Old Testament, we we can be certain that everyone listening to Jesus knew that when he told a story about a vineyard, it wasn't just any old vineyard. I mean, they would have known that he was referencing the nation of Israel when he talks about a vineyard in his story. They would have also noticed that, as Jesus told the parable, he, he was focusing on something different than was typical in the Old Testament. Because the messages in in the books of the prophets that were given to the people that talked about Israel as a vineyard, the the focus was always the vineyard. It was was on what would happen to the vineyard if, if the people continued to reject God. Here, Jesus is not focused on the vineyard. He's focused on the tenants, the caretakers of the vineyard. And so that would have stood out to them. And without question, they would have understood that 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 reference to the tenants was the religious leaders. It's a pretty clear connection to make. So in the parable, those tenants, they repeatedly reject the servants that were sent to them by their owner. And that plays itself out in real life all throughout the Old Testament because the the prophets that would be sent were continually mistreated. Uh, Some of them were killed. They were beaten. I mean... Even, even up to John the Baptist, the most recent of the prophets. So that had all taken place. And then in the story, 
the owner of the vineyard says, okay, I'm going to send my son. If I send my son, then, then maybe they'll listen to him. And when the son arrived, the, the tenants don't listen, and they don't even just reject him. They, they kill him. And, and that, of course, was the very thing that the religious leaders were planning to do. I mean, can you imagine if it was in your heart? You were looking for a way to destroy Jesus, and he told a story that, that called it out and said, this is exactly what's going to happen. I mean, man, I don't think the crowds in general knew what the religious leaders were planning, but they themselves knew. And, and what we can't miss then regarding authority and identity is, is that by equating himself with the son of the vineyard owner, Jesus, again, without saying it in so many words, he's claiming to be the son of the vineyard owner. And, and who is the vineyard owner all throughout the Old Testament? It's God himself. So he's, he's claiming to be the son of God. And his authority comes from that. That's where his authority comes from. His identity is the son of God. And, and because then his authority was legitimate, as, as the parable goes on, those who reject him and kill him will end up being crushed by him. So, so what we see in this first round of questioning is a focus on Jesus' authority, right? And, and what we see Jesus stating is that his authority comes from God himself. Since he is the son of God, since he is claiming divinity, that's where his authority lies. He is the son of God. He's come to his own people, but he is going to be rejected. He's going to be thrown out. He's going to be killed. Now we're going to get to um, application this morning at the very end and kind of look at all of this questioning together as we, as we look at application. But, but for right now, we're going to move on to the second question that was posed to Jesus. So we'll pick it up in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they, they caught on with that first parable. They recognized who he was talking about. Uh, verse 20, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something, he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So, it, so in the first round of questioning, Jesus stumped them with kind of a no-win situation about the authority of John the Baptist. And so here, the religious leaders try to take a page out of his own playbook, right? Now, now before that, they, they pretend to be sincere and they butter him up with compliments Maybe he'll let his guard down and slip up. Uh, probably not the worst strategy ever, but, but this is the Son of God we're talking about, so, so it didn't work. But their own question uh, about paying taxes to Caesar, it was meant to back Jesus into a corner, and, and 
draw the ire of either the Romans or the crowds. And, and in essence, their question is one about allegiance. So Jesus, if we back you into a corner and ask you a question where you have to make somebody upset, which one are you going to choose? Where does your allegiance lie? Are you going to make the Romans upset or are you going to make the crowds, the crowds of Jews, upset? By responding as he did, Jesus showed that he wasn't backed into a corner and there was a third option that his allegiance didn't lie with the Romans or with the crowds, that his allegiance was to God himself. That, that, was, that was the response that he gave. Now, now because, uh, because human governments are set up on this earth and, and given authority by God, which, let's be honest, sometimes we're not super fond of, right? But the Bible's clear on that. You know, uh, there's, we're, we're called to submit to those authorities, and taxes uh, can be one of those things. And, and, and I recognize, you know, our nation was born out of issues with, in, in part, issues with taxes and being instituted from a government, and we could have a long conversation on that. But, but we recognize that governments are instituted by God, that we're called to submit to them. But human governments don't have ultimate authority over us. Only, only God has that authority. God's image is stamped on each one of us, and so we ought to offer ourselves to him. So, so to be sure, Jesus' answer, Jesus' answer here, I mean, this is a famous situation, a famous response from Jesus. It does give us great wisdom as we, as we work through how to relate to our own government today. But primarily, his answer revealed that he was fully and completely committed to carrying out the purposes of his heavenly father. His heavenly father. Not the Romans, not the crowds. He was there. His allegiance was to God the Father. And we, we, we clearly see that in, in the response that he gives. And, and they realize... Uh, man, Jesus just got out of the trap that we tried to set for him. And then they have to become silent. They marvel at, at the response that he gave. And, and as I said earlier, that this, this group of religious leaders consisted of all these other subgroups. And so after seeing this attempt to trap Jesus fail, one of the subgroups, the Sadducees, say, oh, we're going to take a crack at it. We're going to try and trap Jesus. And, and while the questions so far have focused on his uh, authority, have focused on his allegiance, uh, this third one focuses on his theology, the theology of Jesus. So look, look with me at verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there's a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, 
The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes, one of the other subgroups, answered, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. So, so Luke informs us, as we're kind of uh, focused on the Sadducees here, Luke informs us that this group does not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The, the Sadducees were a group that only held to the authority of the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, known as the Pentateuch. Those are the only books that they saw as authoritative, and based upon their reading of the Pentateuch, they did not see resurrection listed there. They didn't think that that was a, a, a real doctrine to hold to, resurrection of the dead. So in an attempt to discredit Jesus' theology of the resurrection, because Jesus has been talking about rising from the dead, so in an attempt to disprove his theology there, they, 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 they point to this Old Testament law and they set up a hypothetical situation in which a woman had been married seven times in this life. And, and you can almost hear them like, well, Jesus, if, if there's really resurrection, like you say there is, then whose wife is she going to be? Like there's this conundrum here that there's just no good answer to. And, 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 you know, we might, at least I, I find myself looking at that situation and be like, well, that's kind of extreme, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're putting together this hypothetical situation. Uh, but even though that's the case, and even though it might be kind of hard to relate to that specifically, I think the basic question still applies for today. I mean, we could say, well, well, what about a spouse that's been married for 20 years and then they're, they're a couple that's been married for 20 years and then there's one of the spouses passed away? And then what if after a time that person got remarried and was remarried for another 20 years? I, I mean, what's it, what's it going to be like at the resurrection? What's it going to be like in heaven? Is that a little awkward? Like, I, I mean, that's a real question. That, that really is a real question. And, and, and to be fair, even though the Sadducees were trying to trap Jesus and discredit him, it is a valid question. And, and it deserves a real answer, and Jesus gave a real answer. He could have just said, you're just trying to trap me, guys, come on. But he gave a real answer to them. And, and honestly, the answer does leave me with plenty of questions, but it is, a, it is an answer nonetheless. And so what Jesus says is, at the resurrection, people are not married or given in marriage. I mean, whatever eternal life consists of specifically, marriage between people isn't one of them. Now, as I said, I got a whole slew of follow-up questions that, that, I, would, that I would love to ask uh, about this, but because the questions I have aren't directly answered in the Bible, I'm going to have to wait to wait until heaven to, to get the answers that I desire. And I can speculate, and, and, and many people do speculate, and I think there can be some benefit there, but, but at the end of the day, you know, I just don't know with certainty the answers to those other questions that I have. But what is clear from Jesus' response to the Sadducees 
what is clear is that when Jesus makes theological statements, we can take those to the bank. He knows what he's talking about. Um, There is, in this instance, there is a resurrection of the dead. He's answering their question. Yes, there is. Now, he's going to make it quite clear in in, in a few days when he himself rises from the dead. I mean, that really ought to remove doubt. But even now, Jesus says, no, there's resurrection from the dead. And, And what I love is that Jesus says, okay, you only hold to the first five books of the Bible. Let's go there, and I'll show you from there that there is a resurrection. And, and he points out that, that uh, um, when God is referred to as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, after all those guys lived, that he still is the God of them because they are, they are not, they're not, I mean, they're physically dead, but they're not spiritually dead. They are still alive in that sense. And so there's a resurrection that will take place. That's why God is still their God. So Jesus was faced with this theological question that the Sadducees thought, again, they thought they would have him trapped, but he shows his wisdom, he he shows his identity through his answer. Because being God, you know what eternity is like. And so he's uh, he's authorized (laughs) to answer this question. And then to just kind of further show his theological qualification, Jesus poses his own conundrum to the, the religious leaders. He, he uh, brings this from Psalm 110. So look at verse 41. But he, but Jesus said to them, well, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So Jesus presents his own conundrum there. How could David refer to his descendant as his Lord? I mean, it it was customary for it to go the other way, for descendants to refer to their ancestors as Lord, but not the other way around. You wouldn't call your descendant Lord. And I mean, the reason that David refers to his descendant as his Lord is because Jesus, as his descendant, is also his Lord because he's the Son of God. I mean, it's a conundrum with a very simple solution, provided that you recognize Jesus is the Son of God. If Jesus is the Son of God, then of course David can refer to his descendant as Lord, and it makes perfect sense. But because the religious leaders weren't willing to recognize Jesus in that way, it was a conundrum for them, and and they didn't have a good response to that theological question. So in a way, Jesus was uh, was put through the ringer, if you want to call it that. I mean, three direct questions that were asked to him by the religious leaders. And and, and as we start to, to land the plane this morning and, and think about what this all means for you and me, I think we can learn quite a bit by, by looking at, at this all as a whole. Because as I said, three times the religious leaders confronted Jesus with questions. And three times Jesus responded to their questions in such a way that it, that it validated his identity as the Messiah and as the Son of God. Um, Jesus' authority, his allegiance, his theology, 
they all stood up to the tests from those religious leaders. And because Jesus had passed their tests, it meant that, that each person present had a decision to make. Uh, since Jesus could not be discredited like they hoped would happen, they had to decide how are they going to respond to him. I mean, he showed himself to be the Messiah, to be the Son of God. He passed the test. So how will they respond? And, and what we see in the last uh, three verses of chapter 20 and the first four verses of chapter 21, we see two contrasting pictures of people who responded to Jesus. So let's look at the first one here at the end of chapter 20. Uh, verse 45 it says, In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love meeting in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So the scribes, the teachers of the law, they, they, they seemed to show no desire to, to repent of their former way of life. They, they came face to face with who Jesus was, with his identity, and, and they refused to accept him. And, and Jesus pointed out that, that their focus was entirely on themselves. They wanted fancy clothing. They wanted uh, esteem among the crowds. They wanted authority in the synagogues. They wanted recognition at, at the social gatherings. They wanted financial gain by whatever means necessary, uh, even harming widows to get it. I, I mean, the religious leaders, they didn't only reject Jesus in order to maintain the status quo, which benefited them greatly. They didn't just reject him. They, they worked the system, as we'll see, to get him killed. I mean, they, in their selfishness, in their desire to keep what they had, they rejected him and killed him. That was, that was one response to Jesus, rejecting him. The other response we get at the beginning of chapter 21 and it says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. So, so contrasted to the religious leaders, and, and the contrast really is this story with the one before it, and within this story of the widow itself, the widow humbled herself before God and, and, and showed a willingness to, to sacrifice everything for him. And it was because of her acceptance of, of God. And, 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 you know, we, we can argue about whether or not a person, uh, whether or not it's financially wise for a person to give away their last bit of money and now we require somebody else to care for them. But, but that's missing the whole point of, of what Jesus is driving at here. It's really not a story about financial giving. That, that's, that's part of it. But, but it's really a story about accepting Jesus and that acceptance being seen through humility and sacrifice. I mean, that, that's what it's about. Humility, sacrifice, th those things are quite present in the story 
and the example of the widow. But those two things are quite absent in the previous example of the religious leaders. So we have those two contrasting accounts of the response to Jesus. Some reject him and others accept him based upon who he is. And that's where we get, that's where we get the point of application for our context today. In response to Jesus' proven authority and his proven allegiance and his proven qualifications in his theology, do we humbly accept him or do we pridefully reject him? That, that's, that's what it comes down to, plain and simple. And, you know, I, I think at some point in their life, I think every person who hears about Jesus questions him to see, is he truly who he claims to be? And, and, and I don't think that's a bad thing, and I don't think that's an unholy thing. God is not so fragile that he can't stand up to the questions that we ask. I mean, Jesus passed with flying colors. God can handle it. God's also not so secretive that, that he's not willing to answer our questions. Jesus responded to every one of these questions, even questions that came from ulterior motives. So, so like the religious leaders, I think we can come to Jesus with our questions. We can. Questions of authority, we can come to him. We can say, why should I live the kind of life that you call me to live? Why should I do that, Jesus? Why should I follow your example and die, die to myself? You know, are, are you really sovereign in my life based on the things I've been through, the abuse that I've suffered? I mean, we can ask those questions of authority to Jesus. We can, we can ask him questions about his allegiance. You know, Jesus, are you just some egocentric person who craves worship, or are you truly submitted to the Heavenly Father? Jesus, why, why would I want to live in your kingdom forever? Are you just a king that's going to force me into submission for the rest of eternity? I mean, we can, we can answer those allegiance-type questions or ask those allegiance-type questions. We, we can ask the theological questions to Jesus. You know, Jesus, fully God, fully human, how does that work? I mean, we can ask him that. Jesus, do you really still love me even after I've committed that sin nobody else knows about? Jesus, do I still possess your image on me even when I'm dealing with physical brokenness and spiritual brokenness in my life? I, we can ask all of those questions to Jesus. And I'm not going to promise that we're going to get full detail answers like we want for every one of them and, and fully grasp the situation after we ask the question. I mean, I know I still have lots of answers. <laughs> there are lots of questions pertaining to that. <laughs> I have lots of questions pertaining to the answers that, uh, that Jesus gave in today's passage. But I, I can promise us that in the midst of those questions, Jesus will show himself to be who he claimed to be. I, I have no doubt about that. He is the Savior who rescues us. And he is the Lamb of God who redeems us. And he is the Messiah who protects us. And he's the Son of God who reconciles us to himself. And, you know, again, the, the passage that Jesus referenced in Exodus 3 that we read earlier this morning, when, when God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, he said, I am who I am. 
I am who I am. His, his identity is firm, and it is unchanging. But what can change is our relationship with God and, and how we experience him in our lives. Uh, I mean, the religious leaders, um, all those who reject Jesus, will come to know him as the great judge who calls them to account for the sins that they've committed. The, their rejection of him will, will be met with, with an escort away from his presence for all eternity. But the widow and, and all those who accept Jesus will, will come to know Jesus as the Savior who rescues them, rescues them especially from the penalty of sin. And, and their acceptance of him will be met with open arms, welcoming them into deeper and deeper relationship for all eternity. I mean, Jesus is who he says he is. There's, there's just no way around that. Um, and he's proven it. That's what he did in chapter 20 of Luke. He proved that he was who he says he was. And so in light of that, the question becomes, how are we going to respond? Are we going to accept him based on that? Or are we going to reject him out of that? And it's a question that I, I can only answer for myself and that all of us can only answer for ourselves as well. How will we respond to this Jesus who is who he says he is? It's a good question to let linger. It's not, a, it's not even a question that we just answer once. I think that's a question that, that in different ways every day we are called to answer. How will we respond to this Jesus who is who he says he is? Would you stand with me and let's... Let's come before God in prayer and give him, give him praise that he could stand up to those questions and he can stand up to our questions as well. God, we come to you this morning and um, I'm not going to lie, there's a part of me that likes to see you give it to the religious leaders and, and come out victorious in the face of their, their, uh, their traps that they set and uh, but more than that, uh, I recognize in this that the, there's, a, there's a certainty regarding your identity. That any question that any religious leader or any question that I ask, you are fully able to respond to and give an answer and, and, and prove yourself to be who you are. And so I'm thankful for that. Because there are some big questions that we ask. And there are some questions that come from uh, a deep sense of wonder, sometimes a deep feeling of pain. And God, you, you, can, you can and you do receive all of those and respond to us with what we need. And I'm so thankful for that. And so I pray for, for our response to you in return. God, would you, would you help us? We, we need humility to, to receive you positively. We, we, we want to humble ourselves and kneel before you. I thank you that you are who you say you are. Uh, these, uh, what we read about you in, in, in the Bible, the, the songs that we sing, uh, the, the truths that are pro proclaimed about you are, are firm and steadfast, and we're so thankful for that. And so I pray that you would guide us, help us to 
respond to you with acceptance. That that would mark our lives as a whole and that that would mark our lives each and every day in each and every situation that we face. We thank you for your love. We thank you that that part of who you are is going to the cross for us, which we're preparing ourselves to encounter as we get to the end of Luke's gospel. God, we thank you and we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.